Hi everyone, welcome to the third episode of the season 8 of the Productize podcast. This is a second part of a series of two podcasts recorded at the Radical Product Thinking Book Lounge event held online on October 14th, 2021. The Productize podcast is a show where innovators, geeks, creators and entrepreneurs come to discuss impactful ideas. Our mission is to inspire people to impactful action. My name is Andre Marquis, and I'll be your host. Okay, let's do this. Um, so who, who would you say the book is, is aiming to? And uh, how would you like the, the readers to, you know, what would you like the readers to get out of the book uh, when, when you're reading? Is, is any, are, are you aiming any specific target audience more, um, or, or is it the broad message that anyone can really take stock from? Yeah, you know, even in writing the book, I really applied these same ideas of radical product thinking, which is what is my vision, right? Uh, and that meant answering this question of whose world am I trying to change? Like, who's the target reader of this? Um, and for me, the target reader is the professional who has experienced product diseases, who identifies with the fact that, you know, we cannot keep doing what we're doing today, uh, who can really identify with that and therefore want to do something differently. And um, and just need the step-by-step approach to be able to create vision-driven change. So that's my target audience. Um, what, um, but you know, my main goal in terms of uh, what is that takeaway? That takeaway is the same one from the presentation. That's what I hope I get people get. That's what I hope people get from the book, which is that every one of us can be vision-driven uh, in creating change. You know, wherever we are, we want to create change, uh, whether it's through our work, personal lives, our startup, uh, anywhere. Um, that's the first thing, right? That we can be vision-driven. And the second thing is that I hope all of us can really see that we're building products. We're building products that affect people's lives. Um, and therefore, you know, it's not just that by being vision driven, we can um, build successful products. It's also that we can build products that uh, affect society in a way that doesn't create collateral damage. Mm-hmm. Um yeah so nowadays of course there's lots of people talking about product-led companies and product-led growth does it make sense to talk about vision-driven companies instead absolutely you know for me um this term of product-led um i've always interpreted that as being vision-driven but i do feel like we can just just be very explicit about it um because you know, to me, product is our mechanism for creating change. We really need to be led by what is that change that we want to bring about in the world? Um, and that really forms that foundation for what product do we even build? Yeah, that leads me to one, one of the questions that um, I was, you know, can't, comes crossing my mind uh, when, I, when I'm always, I'm, I'm reading the book, which is, um, why do you think we still see uh, so much, you know, in, we live in a world where I, I guess that's just my personal take on that, but I guess the majority of the companies we deal on and, and products, they don't seem to be 
vision driven, right? They don't seem to appeal to this higher. And what, why, why do you think that still happens? I mean, we have the tools. Now we have the book. We have the playbook. Um, that the, the gospel has been out there for a while. Why, why do you think that we still see so many visionless uh, companies and organizations? You know, I think the gospel has been there in terms of we have to be product-led organizations or that we have to have a vision, right? But the reality is... Um, what we've learned about how to, what, what a good vision means, I feel that has been really flawed, right? For the longest time, we've touted visions like, you know, being number one or number two in every industry. That was GE's vision. We've touted that as, you know, being a good vision. Um, we've always learned that your vision has to be broad, right? And that's kind of one of the fundamental problems. Um, so that's the first piece of it. But the second piece and what this leads to, right, is when your vision is so broad and, and it's not a clear purpose that comes into everyday focus, what ends up driving what we're doing is just all the short-term business needs. Short-term business needs are what are most urgent and, you know, most uh, top of mind. And so the problem with that approach is then we become increasingly short-term focused. Uh, and by the way, there's research that shows that we have been increasingly short-term driven since the 1980s. Um, that's the other trend that has happened since the 19, actually 70s even. Um, it was basically the trend of this uh, shareholder capitalism where we have, where the only goal of a company is to show returns to shareholders. And so that is has constantly driven this short-term need. And so that leads us to just not be vision-driven, but continuously iterate and always milk the cow wherever we need to, to be able to show those short-term results, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think now we're starting to think about, well, maybe this uh, shareholder capitalism is not the right model. We should move towards stakeholder capitalism. We're starting to have those thoughts, but you know, in terms of a very clear methodology for how, what does stakeholder capitalism mean? How can you actually apply that in building your company that has been missing and i feel like this is the first time we're actually talking about that in terms of the step-by-step -step methodology yeah absolutely it's a very recent gospel in that way i think arsh noor she has a question here uh, about fast changing market needs dictating vision changes uh arsh noor, do you want to jump in and do the question yourself yeah sure uh hope my voice is audible it yeah. is uh, yeah, I mean, sometimes uh, the market needs change like uh, at an exorbitant speed um, because of the changing um, consumer needs. And uh, I think the recent Black Swan event is a testimony to that. So uh, what to do under these circumstances? Like, you know, how, how as a CEO um, can I, you know, um, not impact my uh, people who have built that product and plus also take care of the profit holders, right? Um, all, all the people who are funding the company. Um, I think that's the main question. Yeah, uh, and, and I think there are two parts to this question, right? So one is the, um, how do you deal with this fast changing market? Um, and very often we think like, oh, vision, strategy, all of this takes time. Uh, sometimes you just need to act. And I feel like this is such a myth because, 
in just acting fast, it gives us the satisfaction that we're doing something. But very often, you know, we might be on a galloping horse, even if it's going in the wrong direction, right? Um, and so even if you, when you have a company and you need to move fast, talking about the vision and strategy doesn't take long. You can have a whole visioning session. And this is what I do when I facilitate sessions. You can have a whole visioning session in one hour. A strategy session will take another, you know, hour and a half or so. But really, like, it doesn't take that long to think through what is it that we're doing. And the advantage of that is that we really bring our whole organization with us on the journey as opposed to just let's just do things. That's where we start moving in different directions. Uh, the second part of your question was, you know, when you have this fast changing market, how do you balance the profitability versus um, versus actually being more vision driven? Um, I think one of the key things in terms of a new mindset that we need to think about is, you know, we don't necessarily have to trade off profitability uh, with being vision driven. We can be both, right? Um, I think it's really this false dichotomy that we've created. We just have to sometimes be creative and recognize what we're doing um, if we are completely being irresponsible in terms of just optimizing for metrics and, you know, oh, well, there's collateral damage to the world, but so what, right? Uh, I think if we stop thinking this, that uh, if we stop being okay with creating what I call digital pollution, then we can start to um, take responsibility. So, you know, the vision versus survival that I talk about, the vision very purposefully, it does not include business goals. Like you'll see in the vision statement, there's no place for, you know, being uh, a billion dollar company in that radical vision worksheet. It's very purposefully out of the vision. The vision is really about the problem we want to solve. The survival, which is where you think about your short-term financial needs, that's where, you know, you take that into account. So every time you're doing something in the world that is good for survival because it's going to make your profit, make you lots of profits, but it's bad for vision, you're taking on vision debt. I think, you know, at the moment you're seeing this um, great resignation is what everyone's calling it, where, you know, there are so many people quitting jobs. They, they feel like, you know, I want to do something meaningful. The more vision debt we're taking on, the more work just feels less purposeful. We don't always have to keep on taking vision debt. And we have to kind of recognize when we're doing that and sometimes invest in the vision. And I'm not saying you can never take vision debt, like that would be impractical. But I think the main problem is we don't even recognize that we're taking on vision debt. Yeah. Um, I think Monica, she also had a question. I don't know, Monica, uh, if she wants to voice her question, otherwise I'll do uh, one of my own, um, which is really to this mantra that we have been living as well for the, I don't know, last 11, 12 years with um, the Lean Startup movement of trying something in the market to see if that works and iterate to achieve this product market fit nirvana. So could be, um, you know, could be a key for a successful product. You think this, 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 you know, this is a gospel, right? This is true gospel in startup world for sure. Do you think this is uh, still valid? And how do you conciliate um, this quantum physics with uh, general relativity, which is, I guess, what you're trying to do here, right? So how do we, 
you know, can we live with both and they have different applications or is this a non, you know, what you're saying is a little bit different. So we should kind of overcome this last uh, phase that we have been living for the last decade or so. Yeah, you know, I think in the last decade or so, what has happened is we're really over you over relying on iteration, right? And this is not uh, to go back to the earlier point. It's not that iteration itself is bad. The problem is that we just iterate without a clear vision. Um, so the um, so why is this idea become so popular? Like, why do we think that that leads to success? Uh, I think a lot of that comes down to the VC business model. The VC model is, you know, they would, the way VC business model works is, you know, they invest in 10 startups, only one startup out of those 10 really needs to make it big, the rest can fail, right? And so, the the ideal model for a VC is fail fast because this way I stop investing in the ones that are dying anyway. So try lots of things, find very quickly what is working, and then I'll invest lots in that one uh, horse that is you know coming first, right? So that's kind of been the VC model. And from this VC model, what's really been popularized is this idea that try lots of things, keep iterating, find what works, uh, and that's going to be the successful one. But statistically, right, this is why 90% of organizations fail or startups fail. Um, and, you know, although we have all these new methodologies like Lean Startup, Agile, it hasn't fundamentally changed how many startups are successful from when they when they start off. Um, and so the analogy I often like to give is when we're playing the statistical game, right, it's like licking trees and hoping to find maple syrup. Um, so we can do that. And, you know, there are just a few startups that get lucky. They find maple syrup because they lick the right tree, right? And then you end up with something like a Twitter or a Slack. They happen to pivot to exactly the right thing and they became successful. But for every company that does that, there's a graveyard of failures, but we there's survivor bias. You only hear about Twitter and Slack that pivoted yeah. and then found success. You don't hear about the whole graveyard of failures. Um, and so this approach is more about being more systematic about what we even try. Because the one thing that you don't hear about often is that as the reality is for a startup, every startup has two to three pivots before you run out of money or momentum, no matter how well-funded it is. Like you literally have two to three pivots before it's like, eh, this isn't really working. And you start, you know, just seeing things dwindling down. So how do you save your pivots for just the most crucial that requires being vision-driven. That's a strong message. Um, yeah, I mean, strong claim as well. And, and I guess one, one of the things that's um, in your book, and let me just uh, read from one of these passages, uh, page 48. So you said, if your vision is about your business goals, you're less focused on solving the customer's problem and are creating an opportunity for a competitor with a clearer focus on the customer's problem to beat you at your game. So why do you think so many uh, companies, you know, even well-funded startups still suffer from the Narcissus complex? Um, and yeah, because this is so insightful, right? Because you're, what you're actually doing is, is, is giving... Uh, someone with a better vision, the edge. So vision becomes a competitive advantage at the end of the day, right? 
So true. And I love how you phrased it, right? Um, I think there are two reasons why uh, narcissist complex is so common, even in well-funded startups. The first one is, uh, you know, an issue that I personally ran into, right? Which is when you're a founder, you are so passionate. You really believe in this idea. You feel like you've experienced the problem and you want to solve it. And so you're very focused on this internal desire to solve your own, to scratch your own itch, let's say. Um, and that makes you think that if I just build these features, you know, others will come. Um, and it's really hard to hear that, it's hard to listen and say, you know, maybe that's not what other people really want. Um, so that's the first reason for a narcissist complex that um, where, you know, having this clear vision and, and being able to have a strategy where you're focusing on the pain point, validating that pain point, all of that becomes a, uh, an advantage. The second reason, right, for narcissist complex is the other piece that we're taught, which is that um, we often feel like that um, you have to kind of get that um, external validation. Um, you have to be that billion dollar company. Uh, this is a little bit of hero syndrome as well, but you know, the narcissist complex is what makes you feel like if I just do this, I can be, you know, big. Um, it's, it's one of those reasons where, you know, because of narcissist complex, we feel like we're just focusing on our own goals of being big, uh, what we want for the organization, our aspirations, et cetera. And that means, you know, instead of focusing on the customer problem, we focus on those short-term needs to be able to raise lots of money, uh, what we think success looks like. Mm -hmm. And what do you think will be crucial for this you know new generation of product managers to be more vision driven you know as a product manager what makes work much more meaningful and satisfying right is to feel like your everyday work um, has meaning that your decisions um, the features that you're building all of that is driven by a vision um, so you know, very often what I find is product people, you know, their role originally was supposed to be strategic, but what ends up being is it becomes a very tactical role. Uh, you become the backlog administrator instead of being that strategic thinker. Um, and so for this next generation of product people, right, uh, instead of being relegated to this role of just tactics, the way you can really bring in or usurp a more strategic role is by having your own clarity of vision, having a strategy for yourself. Um, even if the rest of your organization, you know, if you feel like, well, it's hard for me to push through this vision, et cetera, having one for yourself is the first start because that'll make you feel like your own actions are more meaningful. And, and that start, you then start at a grassroots level to sort of push your vision upwards. Um, and so this, this, this approach helps you do that. Mm -hmm. And I think that that kind of goes here towards uh, Monica's question, which was a little bit about that, which is, um, you know, sometimes individually you might want to create change, you might want to see the change, but um, you'll have people or management or top management stopping you to perform on that vision. Uh, I don't know, Monica, do you want to phrase this yourself or? Is this what you were asking? Oh, I think I don't see Monica right now. Uh, yeah, she's here. Maybe oh. she's muted. But okay, let's just assume this is the question, um, which I'm, which, which, from what I understood is, uh, what do you do if you 
how do, how do you sell the vision up up upwards right how do you go and you up manage vision which i guess is the situation that lots of us as product managers are we're not you know we're not ceo you're not the um you know chief product officer you you, you don't feel that you have the constituency to you know hold the vision as a an employee so how do you how do you do that really is is it that grassroots movements that you're that you're speaking about Exactly. So the way I have uh, done this, right, is exactly as you say, at a grassroots level with your own product team, uh, just with your own product team, work on this vision exercise as a team. Um, and that's the start, the starting point. Once as a team, you have a shared vision, then as you start your sprint planning and you plan, you know, what features you're going to build, start to use the vision versus survival to be able to plan out what features. You know, when you're using this for sprint planning, you'll take more features from the ideal quadrant. You'll take, uh, you know, a couple of features maybe from the investing in the vision quadrant. And you'll mostly try to avoid vision debt, but, you know, sometimes maybe you have to take on some vision debt, but talk about what features you're taking on from each of these quadrants and you plan that into your sprint. Now, once you get this kind of familiarity with this at a grassroots level, now when you talk to stakeholders, you start to use this vision versus survival to communicate upwards to say, you know, here's why we are going to do this feature, or here's why we are pushing back on this feature. And so naturally, the conversation that comes up is, well, what's your x-axis? What's your y-axis? And you have that conversation. And this is where, you know, you start talking about what exactly is that vision, and you share, oh, here's our detailed vision. And the moment you share it, in that whole fill in the blank statement, the thing is, uh, it becomes this API almost for communication, um, not just across your team, but also with other teams. Um, and it prompts kind of the right sort of questions. It's not a slogan, but it's very understandable kind of across the whole organization. Oh, I, you know, I see exactly what your vision is. If there's disagreement, you can start to talk about that. But this is kind of the grassroots level where you start with your team and then you start to communicate upwards. Uh, and it, it kind of forces that discussion about what is that vision? Why did you make this decision? Uh, but this way, right, it helps uh, prompt those discussions to be a little more objective. It's not just about, uh, oh, we don't want to do this feature. Or we're pushing back because we don't think it's a good idea. It makes it more objective. Well, we think it's a good vision fit or not. Here's why it's helping us survive or not. And last question, maybe from at least from my side, um, how, how do you avoid vision depth in an organization, right? And do you propose in your book or elsewhere any kind of metric to measure vision depth? You know, to quantify this to a certain uh, uh, level. You know, it's you know, product managers are. Uh, quantum uh, quantic freaks right they're always trying to measure everything so very metric uh, driven and i guess people should ask you okay how do i measure my my vision depth is this uh, is there a, a non-subjective way to do this that's a great question you know but i think a vision debt uh kind of like technical debt right um in, when you when you take on technical debt, it makes your product or your code more brittle. When you take on vision debt, you're just going further away from your vision. And in some ways, vision debt is more painful than technical debt because technical debt you can fix. Vision debt, it's hard to fire your customers. Um, so once you've taken on vision debt, it's really hard to kind of overcome that. But to your point, right, like how do you measure it? 
do we end up measuring technical debt as much? Not really, right? It's more that we acknowledge something is technical debt or not. And so it's more like it's something similar with vision debt where you're keeping track of how often are you taking on vision debt? Uh, just the very fact that you start to acknowledge it helps you see kind of if you're feeling demotivated as a team and you have five things in vision debt that you've just taken on, it helps you exactly see why. Sometimes just listing those things as vision debt in that uh, in the quadrants helps you see the, the amount of vision debt you're taking on. So more than quantifying it, I feel like it helps you create alignment in terms of feeling like, are we taking on too much vision debt? And it prompts that conversation. Every time you take on vision debt, well, guys, when are we ever going to invest in the vision, right? We're just continuing to take on vision debt. And one last thing, right, is the advantage of acknowledging, just talking about vision debt is the fact that when you're taking on, the fact that you're saying this is vision debt means that it's not just a loss of confidence in the vision. It's not the management saying the vision is not important. They recognize that, look, this is not a good thing, but here's why we're doing it. And it's that communication that I care about the vision, but here's unfortunately why we're doing this. That is super helpful. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, especially if you're able to voice your you know, being honest with the team, right? Because people are not stupid. They know that sometimes you have to do some sacrifices towards vision, uh, towards the vision. So you have to take vision depth. But uh, if you voice it and and you explain the the rationale, that that makes the conversation much more humble and 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 candid. So um, yeah, I mean, if anyone has any question, by all means, um, feel free to do it. I'm just going to uh, share um, here. The, the screen. So this is actually a Q&A moment. Um, and you, yeah, Paulo, you have a question, go on. Yes, thank you. Uh, thank you, Radhika, for your excellent Paulo, presentation. Let, sorry to interrupt, let, let me just say, if no. you if you don't mind just uh, um, going to this feedback form in, in, in the meantime, while we're still doing some Q&A, because this might take one or two minutes, and this is the feedback form that gives you access to the raffle. So uh, we want you to give this amazing opportunity to have a one-on-one -on -one session with our special guest today, Hadika. And by answering the form, we'll have your data and you'll get into the, the, the raffle, the Wheel of Fortune that we'll do uh, today. So make sure that you register by uh, answering the feedback form and we'll be doing the, the raffle just after the, the Q&A. Uh, Paulo, uh, sorry for the interruption. Uh, it's okay, it's okay. I uh, was uh, um, thanking uh, Paulo Tyson Hadike uh, for this excellent presentation. Uh, so my question uh, is about the vision. So um, in large companies, the company has a vision, uh, sometimes not very clear, is it focused into a billion, dollars or a billion clients, <laughs> you know, conquer the world, then you have uh, 10 products with uh, different visions. How, how, how the hell do you align all these, <laughs> all these visions, <laughs> you know? Great question, right? Especially in bigger companies, the way you can start this process is, uh, first of all, for every product, um, have a vision for that particular product. Um, and then, you know, presumably you have a hierarchy of product people in the organization. And so, um, you know, each portfolio manager um, 
will then have a vision and has the responsibility to look across all of these uh, product vision statements uh, and say, you know, are these product visions aligned? Um, where is their overlap, et cetera? It's a way that you can use also to do some product rationalization. Um, very often I'm asked, you know, well, but if you have a product vision for each of these products, aren't these vision statements very similar? They can be, right? And that's okay. But when you're answering the who, what, why, when, how questions, um, there may be some answers that are exactly the same. Some answers might be different. And so when every product team has the same format of a vision statement, that's where it acts like an API. You know, I understand now what you guys are doing and vice versa. It becomes easier to kind of align all these vision statements as a company and kind of cascade it upwards. Um, and then, you know, finally, I also suggest at a leadership level, going through a vision statement and talking about, you know, what is our vision for the company in a very similar format. Um, so, yeah, basically cascading this vision all the way so that every product team has it. Do, do you have a framework for doing that, for helping us to do that? Uh, I haven't written a book on it yet. It's more, it's more just experience. Maybe that's the next thing to do, a book on that. Or, or a workshop, thank you, thank you. If, if you want uh, to, you know, to prototype that, uh, that framework with us. Um, all right. Any, any other questions? You still have like, uh, Hadika, can you still take my, oh, okay. We have a uh, pre-order for your upcoming book already from Hahoa. Uh, hi, uh, how do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Any question there? Yeah, no, I think that's like, I think what the theme that I'm hearing from a couple of folks is, is operationalizing this. And, and, and I think what you said, Andre, you know, upselling this, this process and vision, I think, you know, as, as I do a lot of professional development and love a lot of these ideas, you know, it's always in that execution up that that's the challenge, you know, and, and I think one of the things I, I think I agree with you, Radhika, just do it is a way, you know, you have to do it and commit to it and, and learn how to do it is, is one of the coaching pieces that I've said. And so, but the more, the more frameworks that are out there to do it successfully, I think um, I'm all ears on that, especially in large, large organizations and super hierarchical organizations um, that it's, it's a challenge. Yeah, you know, one of um, the examples that, you know, I didn't really talk about that much in the book, uh, but uh, the experiences in terms of doing this, and especially in a large organization where, you know, in a large organization, I, there's, this requires a new way of thinking. Um, it's not so much extra process. It's really a way of thinking, right? But anytime you create change, change is always hard. And the larger the organization, the more they're set in ways because you need repeatability um, in, in how you're doing things. And so there's almost this organizational immunity to bringing in a new idea. It's a foreign body coming in, right? Um, and so the way that I've found this to be uh, easier to kind of push forward is uh, start with one product team. Um, and you start to apply this in a product team that is kind of hungrier than others. You know, it's a newer product team. Uh, and you show some success with this uh, approach. Uh, and then, you know, 
you have to kind of get that buy-in, continue to show or uh, do a lot of marketing for this product team and kind of how you've created change by taking on this new approach. That is one approach. Um, the second thing that I've done uh, in organizations is uh, doing a book club. Uh, you know, again, in larger organizations, there has to be a really clear reason for why are we creating change because otherwise, um, you know, just change is hard. So a book club, is a good starting point where you talk openly about product diseases, where you see examples of tons of other companies who have faced product diseases. And so, you know, talking openly about what product diseases are we seeing? Um, and therefore, you know, what are we going to do about those product diseases? And that's a way of starting to get buy-in to be able to implement those changes. But that's the difference between larger companies and startups. In a startup, the founder can just kind of steamroll things and say, you know, we're applying this approach, that's it. Um, in larger companies, it takes more of this buy-in and communication. And it starts with, you know, why is the status quo unacceptable and having a clear answer to that so that there is uh, a desire to adopt a new approach. All right. So let me just uh, tell this little story that you were telling me about. Uh, why not have what? Why not an audiobook? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, so there is an audiobook. Um, there is uh, the, the print audiobook plus the ebook um, at uh, on Amazon. But the reason um, I've not um, narrated the audiobook, although, you know, I love giving talks, etc. Um, it goes back to um, the example I gave with Claudette Colvin and the story I told there. Um, you know, she really inspired me in wanting to create change. Uh, one of the things about this book, by the way, is that I share a global perspective in terms of showing products around the world that change the world. It's not a Silicon Valley perspective. Uh, I really wanted to make sure that we were representing kind of other parts of the world as well. Um, and you'll see as in the presentation, you know, it's not just about um, these rare white male leaders who are able to create change. You know, the examples I gave were of women of all sorts, all colors, right? Um, so, the, the point about the audiobook was um, I realized that if I were narrating this audiobook, um, I would be, you know, a woman of color who is talking about diversity in the book, but is also narrating the book. And I really wanted to make sure that, you know, there's this cognitive bias that we have, where if we are listening to someone who happens to be a white male, um, there's research that shows that that person ends up being uh, heard. And so the reason my audiobook, you know, I, I, it was a vision driven choice. Like my strategy is that I want to make sure everyone really hears and listens to this perspective that is a more global perspective. And the strategy was to have a narrator who is a British male voice um, that, you know, that is talking about diversity. Uh, and that was a very important, you know, uh, angle or a message um, that, you know, it, Every, every, every one of us should be talking about diversity and the importance of having um, these very varied examples and of visionaries from around the world um, and, and making sure that that view is heard. All right, understood. And uh, sorry, I, I, I meant why not an audiobook narrated by, by, by yourself? And we have, you know, we now know why. So um, I'm just going to to do the raffle 
um, that has been promised with the the you know the the the, the people have answered the the feedback form and uh, yeah let's see what this is going to to hold so I'm going to press somewhere like here <laughs> there's your this is so funny <laughs> your face is in the middle okay so congratulations Ahoa. yeah congratulations Ahoa uh, Hamano you are the winner of this uh, 101 with Radhika so what is going to happen is we're going to send you uh, Radhika's Kalendlai URL and then you can book directly with Radhika yeah great so this is it guys um, thank you so much for your time it has been amazing and thank you so much Radhika for the opportunity to have this uh, lounge at our not book club, but productize podcast. This is also going to be published in a podcast format. If you're interested, you can find everything at this um, link tree uh, where we have links to the podcast, to the YouTube channel, to our social media. And of course, uh, very, very soon, I guess, tomorrow to the audio podcast on our um, podcasts at the usual platforms so guys thank you so much and see you very very soon bye bye Have thank nice you so time. much this was lovely bye. Bye. thanks thanks bye bye bye, bye. guys <laughs>